I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mmm. Sure is. Yep. We're recording this at, what time is it? 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Sunday night. Very late. And I'm drinking white wine. For you. It's late for you. It's late for me. We are drinking... Because I have common sense. But... <laughs> okay. Well, I have some good damn sense. Let's not be rude. Um, uh, this white wine was uh, free courtesy of Netflix, which uh, we received in... A series of increasingly elaborate, uh, highly wasteful uh, boxes of swag. Clearly, Netflix doesn't care about sustainability. Uh, this is um, for that Olivia Coleman movie I saw in Venice. Oh, <laughs> uh, the Lost Daughter, which is based on a really good book by Elena Ferrante, um, which I recommend. The book it's short, very easy read, uh, and uh, I also like the film directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Great. Uh, also, uh, just to be clear, I don't care for white wine. Same. So if, when, when sending me wine, please send me red wine. Mainly because I drink very slowly. So this wine is supposed to be chilled. That's not my problem with white wine. It's just too sugary and... Well, no, taste this one. It's not sugary. They're not sugary, generally. Not all sugary, true. But I think it's just that by the time I would finish my glass, it's like well at room temperature. Yeah. It, it, it just does nothing. They're often very dry. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I probably sound stupid because I'm not a wine expert, but I don't care for white wine. Please don't send me white wine. I like I like a really good claret. Uh, that always feels very adult to me drinking that. Uh, oh, and you know a white wine that I do like because my mom is so into Kurt Russell and his Gogi wine. Oh, the uh, the Birdie. No, he has a Chardonnay called Goldie. Oh, Goldie. It's very buttery. It does. I have never drank something. I'm like. Where my first thought was, this tastes like butter. Yeah, it tastes like <laughs> butter. That's <laughs> so weird. Moving on, yesterday was your birthday. Yes, it was. Uh, how do you feel? I feel the same, but now I have to say I'm 37. Uh, how was your birthday evening? It was lovely. Uh, we had dinner, and you, uh, you know, because I like to go out, and you were a good sport, and came out for a little bit to Akbar in Silver Lake. And then yes. you went home, and I danced the night away. In addition to not liking white wine, I don't like going out. So, <laughs> please don't ask me to go out either. I'm I'm an, I'm I'm an old man. Ask me to like a nice wine bar or like, you know, like around nine. But you're not an old man. That feels sensible. Like, uh, you know, Joseph likes to think he's sensible, and he likes to he likes deals. The reason I'm sensible, what is it? What does like you deals be, have to do with? You will be more prone to do something if you think you're getting it's a deal. Or that is true, but that has nothing to do with this. You do that I, what with I'm cars. Saying, well, that that is true, but I don't think that relates to this. What I when I say being sensible is that I know my lifestyle and I know my patterns. Like I get up every morning around five, so staying out late doesn't work for me because I will still get up at five and then I'll be a wreck the next day. Sure. And I think a lot of people will, it's just, I don't want to go on and on about it and I'm not shading people who like to stay out late. I just think that it would be nice if we adjusted like socializing and nightlife to be a little bit early because most people don't have a situation where they can sleep in all day. So a lot of y'all be out here wrecked and haggard trying to go out late at night and it's like, well, you know, it takes its toll on people. All y'all who say you're 30 and I think you're 43 is like, oh, because oh, you drink and stay up late all the time. But 
So when I say sensible, I mean that. Like, I just know that it doesn't make sense for me to stay up late. Also, I don't feel good when I'm up late. Mm-hmm. All I can think about is I want to be in my bed. Mm-hmm. I start, like, getting, like, my eyelids get heavy. And I'm, like, it just is a weird feeling being at a bar, knowing that I'm, like, fading. And then feeling obligated to, like, you got to stay out longer. But I don't want to. And you didn't. And I have car keys and a tank full of gas. I'm not going to stay somewhere I don't want to be. <laughs> it just, but, but there's nothing wrong with that. Like, if you like doing it, you should do it if it makes you happy. I, I just think there's this phenomenon of, like, people, even at the age of 43, I still feel pressured, like, when I was in college. You know, I was, like, I was 19 with a fake ID in college and feeling pressured to stay out late, even though it's like, but I have to go to school tomorrow. Or I have homework. I'm tired. And I, I just really resent this idea that it's like everyone wants you to do stuff that just doesn't really make sense. Like, oh, you want me to like stay out super late or drive way over here to get to drink too much, knowing that I have to drive back home or I don't know. Yes. The, it, it's a lifestyle that doesn't work for the, me. But. The moral of this story is uh, do what works best for you. Do what works best for you. Because other people certainly won't uh Keep what's best for you in the back, in their mind's eye. And leave me the fuck alone. Like, just, <laughs> I don't want to be pressured to do things I don't want to do. But I'm digressing. Well, it was very nice. Based on all that, then now everybody knows how special it was that you did come out for my birthday. Yeah. Uh, moving on. Drag Race UK Series 3, Episode 8. It was the Pearly Gates Roast. So the remaining four queens had to roast everybody, everybody. The eliminated queens were in the audience and the judges on the panel. Uh, Ella of a Day was amazing. Yeah, pretty good. I mean, she was really good. Kitty Scott Claus, I thought wasn't great, but the judges thought she was great. So that was weird. And then Crystal Versace and Vanity Milan bombed. But not hard. Like, Not hard. There were, were there was also some playfulness with their bombing. It wasn't painful. It wasn't a dumpster fire. It, and it was wasn't a- cringy because they were sweet, and I think because they're likable. I think as the audience, we were like rooting for them yeah. i just felt like oh darn you're not you're like like you're bombing it's not like an Alyssa edwards mom or who's that one that called somebody fat pheromone did a really shitty who, job who called lonnie love fat to her face valentina is it valentina? Or was it pheromone? i think it was pheromone it was that was that like, was bad oh shit so vanity milan and crystal versace lip sync and to a song called hallucinate by dua lipa I thought Vanity Milan did a better lip sync, but I think Crystal Versace deserves to be in the top three. So I was okay with I thought they did the kind of lip sync where you just let them both stay again. But, but they had already let them both stay. Yeah. So it's so. like you can't... And you've already had another double save, so it's like you can't really... But yeah, Vanity Milan went home. So our top three for this season is Kitty Scott Claus, Ella Day, and Crystal Versace. Who do you think is going to win? Uh... I can't. I'm. I'm sure it'll be Elevaday or Chris Kitty Scott Claus. I think I like Elevaday a little more. I'm a little tired of the, this whole Rue Peter bad shit. Is, and but they all do that across all the board. Like who won the most and blah blah blah. It's like well, Elevaday's won the most. So. But also like, worry about yourself. Just worry about yourself. I think Elevaday will win. I think of the three, she probably does deserve to win. So I would go for her. Mm-hmm. Okay, Canada's Drag Race, Season 2, Episode 6, The Sinner's Ball. 
This one was interesting. I'm so tired of Canada. <laughs> I'm so tired of Canada and their, their judging panel, which is so... It, it's a reflection of, I think, Canadian culture across the board is just... <sighs> well, be, be careful. You, you're going to talk about all of Canada. Uh, but the main challenge was the sinner's ball. So they had three categories where they had to do, like, ugly sins, seven deadly sins, some other bullshit. Um I forgot we had to talk about this. Ugh. Yeah, and I don't like. I don't even. the The biggest uh, sort of the thing I remember most from this episode is uh, Kamora Amor. She, for her ugliest sin, she the other queens basically interpreted that as like ugly drag. Mm-hmm. So they just came out wearing ugly shit, which is a lot like the fugly uh, pageant, yeah. the Miss Fugly pageant. But Kimora, um, Kimora Amor decides to come out dressed as a slave. Yeah. Like shackled. Because slavery is ugliest. Because sin. slavery is ugliest. Sin. And I thought the sentiment was powerful and yeah. the representation was powerful. I think it was lost on this goofy ass show. But I, but I applaud her for doing it because it was. I know it took a lot for her to get out there and do that. Yeah, of and course. And it was hard to watch. Yes, it was. So I applaud her for that. Um, but yeah, I don't think this goofy ass show deserved that level of um, well, one because expression, because they don't know what to do with it. So and then moving on to what you were alluding to, I yeah, go ahead. So you have the judges panel for this episode is Brooklyn Heights, who's the uh, main host, uh, Brad Gorecki, Goreski, Goreski, and Amanda Bruegel, Amanda Bruegel. who is a, a black woman, and then Gigi Gorgeous, a trans woman. So Amanda Bruegel, of course, addresses it, uh, you know, because they bring all the queens out, and Amanda, and usually when during the runway, everybody's saying something, like there's something quippy that's being said. You just have all the judges; they have nothing to say, which. Is fair. But then, when they bring the queens out for uh, critiques, only the black woman... You mean during Kamora Amor's runway with the slave garb, none of the judges said anything? Correct. They were silent. Correct. Yes. Um, anyway, during the critiques, you know, they, they, of course, leave it to the black woman that has to address it. Uh, and she does, very eloquently. The None of the white ones say anything. After deliberations, uh, we get the judges finally addressing it. But I thought in the most kind of uh, uh, circuitous ways that don't make any, that are so dismissive, which is why I think white people, it's, it's this, this is where white people need to it, say what this made you feel. Say that this made you feel uncomfortable because, well, it, wasn't, because it isn't comfortable, but there's an eloquent, elegant way to, to kind of mine those feelings and also uh, further the dialogue, not just saying like, well, she's really using her platform to, uh, for her, her issues. But you're part of these issues because we're all, we're all part of these issues. Well, I don't, I don't agree with you 100% only because we have to remember that this is Canada and these Canadian white people don't have the same relationship with slavery. It doesn't matter what kind of white that, person you are. You should be able to say authentically how you feel and where you stand on this. I don't know. I don't agree with that because I think if you're like a Canadian white person of a particular age, your relationship to slavery... It, it, you can still be a white person that says you're anti-racist or at least like something like i don't i, I still don't agree I, I i don't think that every time a white person sees something that is racist or something that recalls 
a dark history relating to black people or any race. Like, I don't think, because then that means that every time I see, like, like I shouldn't have to speak it's to not, everything that I see. But you're, we're not asking these judges to speak to everything. We're, they're speaking to something specifically on the show that they are judging. I don't think it's too much for, to, for them to do their job and talk about it, have a dialogue about it. To me, it's... But they did. You just didn't like what they said, but I'm saying Because that, it's dismissive. I don't know if it's dismissive when you're talking about people who don't have the same relationship. When Gigi Gorgeous says, like, you made the world stand still, if this, if, if that is what that was interpreted as, that this moment that Kimora Moore uh, fashions for her runway is generating a standstill moment, then why the fuck is not the center point of their conversation? Because they dismiss it. This is something where I'm thinking, you know, this is a situation where I'm trying to think if I were in that position. Like if someone, if a person of Japanese descent were describing to me or de- or presented me with their art that depicted like the concentration camp or the, the camps that we had here in the United States in the 50s, then... Because I'm not as knowledgeable, I think my reaction would probably be as generic as like, wow, that's really powerful. And I know that's something that happened that is really a dark mark on our history. But I wouldn't have the vernacular to really dig in like I would if I had to judge Kamora Amor's performance because I could really speak to how that made me feel. But I can't really speak to, I like, I'm, I think that what those judges gave us is to be expected in but in a way that I think is fair because they don't have the vernacular just like I don't have the vernacular well, to speak to certain things but it doesn't mean that I'm dismissive it's just like wow like it's it's not about not being articulate enough it is about being genuine and human right but I'm saying if you don't have a connection to that if I'm a white canadian guy you know brooklyn heights is younger than i am and i know people my age and the white people in the united states who don't understand the history of racism as it relates to black people in this country so like i can imagine that someone like brooklyn who is very disconnected from that probably like recognizes that it's a powerful statement understands racism exists understands slavery existed but it's not from a place where that is part of the culture right like i don't know how white canadian kids understand slavery but i but but i just think i don't know that i would expect them to have like some, I mean, I don't know what you're looking for them to say, but it's just like if, if, I don't know. I just if feel they like don't have that association it, to it, what like I don't want them to just say some generic fake shit. Of course not, but to totally avoid it altogether. I, but not every white person like grew up knowing about slavery and being around black people. So it's like maybe Brooklyn Heights not only didn't grow up learning about slavery. But also wasn't around black people, maybe. So it's like, what would she say except that as an adult, I recognize... I don't know. It's the second season of this show that she's the host on where race issues do come up in conversation, uh, sometimes very uncomfortably so. And some of the contestants are, you know, many of them are not white. Like, there should be a a comfort level there. And especially after everything that went down about Jeffrey Boyer Chapman uh, last season... Uh, and I think a, a lot of the race-motivated hate that I think was extended towards him, even though I did not enjoy him as a judge on that show. But I don't know. I, to me, it's just... I don't think you're wrong. I, I'm just, I don't fully agree because I think in addition to that, look at the show we're on. Like, it's this sort of like frivolous light thing, like drag, 
I think drag's supposed to be subversive and have a message, mm -hmm. like what Kimora Amor did. But the reality is, drag race has turned into this machine that's really meant to please like adolescent, like girls. Like that's the audience. So I think that to balance those two things is complicated. Especially now, if it were U.S. Drag Race, and a contestant did something like that, and the you know the guest judges because I'm sure Michelle Visage would have something to say and of course Paul that would be probably well thought right yeah, but, but but I would expect that because she is she has um, uh, a proximity to blackness and is of a particular age and is from the United States but if they had two white guest judges I would still who are from the U S I would still expect those people to do what you described as being uh, more appropriate so I don't think you're wrong. I just think that we're expecting a lot from this sort of basic ass version of the show sure. with these people who don't give thoughtful critiques for the most frivolous things. No, and in fact, so who, the who, fact that you expect Brooklyn Heights to say something meaningful about a depict a very sort of emotional depiction of slavery just seems like lofty. So I'm, I'm I don't think you're wrong at all. I, I just don't expect shit from those people and what they did end up saying, which was very generic. Was like, well, that's the best we can get from them, and and it's it's not negative. It's just but, like you know. I think one of the conversations we had about something separate this weekend is, you know, holding ourselves to and and others. I'm talking about the LGBTQIA plus community to a higher standard, and not saying like I I don't. You're not wrong. I think that they should be held to a higher standard. I don't know. Well, moving on, um, you know, we often have video. We have a lot of videos, and every now and then, like, a video gets... So an example would be, like, any movie that would appeal to straight white men, mm -hmm. we get really nasty comments on. Yeah. So, even when we don't... Eat, like, even when we like the movie, it's just, like, people are bothered that we're talking about it, and usually particularly me. And um, most of those films, I usually have to turn off the comments at a certain point, because... It's just like people are really nasty. So like a more recent example was like Old Henry, that Western film, which we didn't say we didn't like. Yeah. I just said that I thought like the fact that like if you don't know who Billy the Kid is, it might be lost on you like the magnitude of this reveal in the movie and that it was kind of dry, but Westerns are dry. So no, Well, not... Um, no, but you know, Westerns have a vibe and people like that. It's just I'm talking about myself. So in that same vein, any movie that involves like issues with like ethnicity nationality that aren't black mm -hmm. because i feel like i can speak to blackness without being too criticized generally but we reviewed encanto mm -hmm. and you liked the film i didn't trash it but we were not clear on the nationality of these cartoons in a fantasy land because i was not clear i was and that's why i brought up in the review how coco seems like a much more uh culturally specific and meaningful film because uh, i'm very clear about what culture they're speaking to so we got a lot of negative comments about how could we not know they're colombian and why don't we do our research and it's so unprofessional and all i wanted to say is hey i'm not an investigative reporter i make silly youtube videos about movies i saw and they're supposed to be my reaction to a film i just walked out of so the only thing i'll say about encanto is two people you and i sat at the chinese the man's chinese theater paid full attention to this movie mm -hmm. it's not like normally when i'm at home on my phone on my computer trying to watch a movie we were at this theater watching it paying full attention 
And the two of us, knowing we had to talk about this film and taking notes, walked away not being clear that these characters are supposed to represent Colombians. And so, I, so I don't think so. I so so I just feel like, to be fair, I usually do research, but I do research on more of like the cast who's made it, blah blah blah. I didn't read the Wikipedia entry. I didn't. I don't think I received press notes on this. I do understand based on comments on the video that there are lyrics in some of the songs alluding to the fact that they're Colombian. Well, that's um, that. Uh, that, that's easy to miss because maybe I'm paying more attention to the visuals than every lyric of the song when there's no subtitles. And if you're going to be mad about that, then be mad that these characters are speaking English. Well, I don't want to get too into it except to say that I'm not trying to excuse the fact that I didn't know because, yes, usually you do research and we do, but we gave we made this video pretty quickly afterwards. I thought we gave a thoughtful review. We just missed this one thing. But all I wanted to say was to be clear, like I'm not doing like documentaries on these films we're reviewing. We're just giving our reaction to a film we saw. And if two people who are paying attention, knowing they're going to have to talk about a film, walk away missing something, then maybe the person who doesn't like what we have to say should consider the filmmaker's role in that. Like whoever made Encanto, like didn't make it very clear that these were Colombian characters, and maybe that was for a reason. Maybe it was supposed to have more universal appeal. So the fact that they're Colombian is very subtle, and that worked because the two of us weren't 100% clear. And I don't know that it fully, fully mattered because I know there were comments about, like, how could you not know that there's some reference to some war and that's what the thing was? And it's like, uh, but, there's all kinds of war in all kinds of these right. Countries. And, it, and so, so, so it's like the filmmaker didn't make it clear to us, and maybe they felt like that wasn't the most important aspect of the story. So it's just funny to me that, like, I'm gonna stop there because I feel like I'm always ranting about people. But anyway, moving on, you um, this week are doing some interviews, some more, yeah. So some more. Do you want to? Give us some insight on what that is. Oh, for um, best international features uh, that countries are submitting, I'll be interviewing the uh, makers of the Hong Kong selection this week and Slovakia and, I believe, Egypt. Uh, and last week I did, uh, what did I do, Estonia and, God, I'm blanking now, uh, Croatia. So that's always a nice, well... But based on everything that else is, that is going on at this time of the year, it's super stressful. But th that's interesting because uh, lots of those submissions, should they not get nominated, uh, it's very hard to see a lot of them. All right. So moving on to films that were released but you didn't cover. One of them is called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. That we didn't cover. I um, wrote a review at the, of this uh, for Ion Cinema. It won the Golden Bear at Berlin oh, okay. this year, which I wish, you know, if we had had a less hectic week, I would have begged you to see this because I thought it was a lot of fun. If we ever uh, become notable enough that someone would take the time to go back and listen to all our podcast and notate all the times you say you wish I would have watched something I don't have the time to do that every time I wish you would have watched this anyway it's directed by Radu Jude um, I did really enjoy it I think you would have enjoyed it too it speaks very much to the a certain moment during the pandemic uh, that even though it's a Romanian film felt like this is how I feel right now um, so I highly recommend that and I, God is Magnolia I forget who distributed that um, Magnolia or IFC. 
The other film is called Zeros and Ones. Yes, which I watched. It It's a new Abel Ferrara film, which he made in Italy during the pandemic, starring Ethan Hawke as twins. Uh, I didn't like it. I think it won. It might have won Ferrara Best Director out of Locarno. It is a very heavily directed film. Uh, I, I didn't like it. I was supposed to rewatch it to review for Ion Cinema, and I didn't. <laughs> but it's out there. You know, I'm a completist. I will watch anything Abel Ferrara does, but I didn't love it. All right, moving on to movies uh, that were watched for fun. You put on something called Welcome Home, Brother Charles. Yes, so... Which I caught moments of. Oh, my God. So I interviewed... Um, God, I'm forgetting his name now. Peter Nilsson for his book Warped and Faded about the Alamo Draft House, the rise of Alamo Draft House. And there was a, a segment about Jama Fanaka in there. And I was reading through all these segments. And I'm a big fan of Jama Fanaka's... Well, I've only seen the first two of three penitentiary films. And you've seen those with me as well. Yeah. Uh, which I thought are a lot of fun. And he directed only six films across his lifetime. But his debut, uh, I read a very fun description of. It's called Welcome Home, Brother Charles from 1975. I think very interestingly to note, we covered Mandingo on this podcast last year, or last, last week. And this is the same year that this came out. Oh my god, I just locked the cat up and somehow she's tapping at my foot. This bitch opened the door. Yeah, she knows how to open doors. I've never I've never seen her open a door. Uh, you know. Oh wow. Well, um, do continue. I need to wrangle her. I think, oh my god, I would so love to write a remake for this. I think uh, like Dave Chappelle or the Wayans would have a heyday with this, but it, it could also be taken seriously. It's we owe its existence really to Melvin Van Peebles because this feels very much like something that only got off the ground because of Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Uh, it's about a, a man named Charles who is a pimp and he is very brutally arrested by a pair of white cops, one who's like a good guy and one who's extremely racist. Um, the racist cop has just seen his wife uh, go to bed with a, a black man on a stakeout, so he's enraged about that. So he tries to, to castrate uh, Charles. I, it's unclear if he's successful, but he goes to prison. There's a bizarre prison montage, but we're, we get the sense that he's experimented on a prison. Prison, and when he comes out, he his incredibly large penis is sentient enough to kill. Uh, and he goes on a rampage of vengeance around L.A., killing everybody that had a hand in locking him up in prison. Um, usually he sleeps with their wives first, which hypnotizes them uh, to aid him in killing their husbands. And you do see it <laughs> at one point. I did see a scene where, yeah, his extremely long penis wraps around a man like an anaconda and kills him. <laughs> the movie is, the quality's poor. It, the quality's poor, but it's compelling to sure. say the least and the, you know it, it's out of the quality the, the, and there's a there's, there's a lot of use of the color red and allusions to the, and the n-word well like the, <laughs> the black men brothers like red I don't know where I'd be interested in reading more about where they thought that was coming from but uh, it looks a lot like the first Dolomite <laughs> mm. if you will which is a lot of fun uh but uh, Marlo Monti, who stars as Charles, he looked like a cross between um, Chi-Chi Devane and Mike Coulter to oh, me. Oh, uh, Kind of interesting. If he had better hair, he, I think he would have been really handsome. But uh, it, this is basically cuck porn. 
is what it feels like. But I think there there's some really strong messages and intentions there uh, about the white man, you know, emasculating uh, uh, black men. And I, I think that this could be updated in a really intriguing way. Mm. Moving on, I watched the New York Times Presents Malfunction, The Dressing Down of Janet Jackson, mm. which was on Hulu. This is the same group that brought us the uh, Britney Spears one, like the Free Britney one. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to take too much time on this one, but I feel like I probably will take a little chunk. But uh, it it basically talks about, well, it's, it's revolving around the Super Bowl incident, the, the 2004 wardrobe malfunction. But... It starts with describing Janet Jackson's career and her impact on pop music and how she was able to um, sort of come from under the shadow of her famous brothers. And it also talks about her issues with her appearance and how she never really felt comfortable in her own skin, which builds up to her being asked to do the Super Bowl. And I think... You know, there's nothing really... There are a couple of things I didn't know before I watched this, but I think anyone who cares about this incident probably knows most things. Um, so some points that were interesting were the some of the owners, particularly from Texas, uh, and since the Super Bowl that year was in Houston, um, had given feedback that they were very concerned about... Because they had all these black people performing? Well, and Kid Rock. So they were very concerned about Diddy or P. Diddy, Nelly and Kid Rock being, because live television, CBS, family friendly. Being R2D too much. Uh, being R2D too much. So uh, the show director and the production people were like, well, you know, there was a lot of pressure on MTV to make sure that this performance was family friendly. So the least of their concerns were Janet Jackson. So they talk about how like, Diddy was asked to like change some of his lyrics because they are misogynist and then Nelly was asked to do the same and then he has a tendency to grab his like crotch when he's performing so don't do that. Kid Rock wanted to wear like an American flag like uh, sort of poncho and they thought that was really disrespectful. So they were really trying to like make sure that they had make adjustments to their performance and then for Janet Jackson her outfit which I didn't know this and I'm so glad I do now because I remember she performs two songs. She opens with All For You and she's wearing sort of like a white flowy fitted thing that I thought she looked great in. And she's wearing heels, which I prefer on her. And then she comes back and does Rhythm Nation and she's wearing this clunky black outfit mm -hmm. that I don't think works well. The thing around her neck makes her look kind of like truncated. She's wearing flats. And then she's wearing like almost like a... What did the Scottish guys... A kilt mm -hmm. over, like, pants, which I thought looked really bulky. But then the documentary explains via the person who was, uh, like, the director of the, that show, said that originally she was supposed to do a tearaway. So the, so the other thing I didn't know was the reason Justin Timberlake was a surprise guest is because, like, the NFL and the... Like like CBS and all the people were too were concerned that the lineup was not family friendly enough, so they wanted to bring someone on who had a little more mainstream appeal. Oh so that's why they picked Justin Timberlake. So, 
he comes on and sings one song with what? Janet. And then the last line is like, uh, I'll have you naked by the end of this song. And he's supposed to rip off her skirt. But they thought that was way too risque. So at the last minute, like the day before, they tell her, you cannot do that. I think just the image of, like looking back, the thought that a well, man, we can get into a man ripping off. We can get okay. into it. So then I find out through this documentary or expose, whatever, that the director of the show confirms because they got receipts that Janet Jackson's stylist the next day, after everything had been finalized, rehearsals were done, he went to a place and bought the nipple ring she's wearing mm -hmm. and spent several hours at a tailoring shop. So clearly making the cutaway bustier clearly knowing that her breast is going to be exposed because she's going to have this nipple ring on. Justin Timberlake was in Europe when he was asked, like he was asked to do the show last minute as a surprise. So his schedule was that he was in Europe the day before the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So he ends up flying to LA and then his flight to Houston. He ends up getting to Houston like way late, like 20 minutes before the show is supposed to start. No rehearsal. So they say the director says that he showed up like in the nick of time and they whisk him away to a room with Janet and her stylist. The show happens. Nipplegate happens. And of course, all the backlash. So my few notes were that... Um, First of all, they spend a lot of time on Les Moonves, who used to be the like CEO or chairman of CBS. And we now know that he has since stepped down because of like all these allegations of sexual misconduct and assault and but how he was very concerned because CBS and MTV were now part of Viacom and there was this big, big push to make sure that everything was family friendly and Les Moonves had sort of assured the NFL commission and CBS that it was going to be fine. So he felt personally attacked and embarrassed that he had put his name out there. And then these people went ahead because Chris Rock still, or Kid Rock still ended up wearing the American flag poncho. Diddy did not change his lyrics. Nelly was still grabbing his damn crotch. And of course, Jenna pulled her titty out. So he was upset and apparently wanted sort of Janet and Justin to kiss the ring as it were mm -hmm. like, fly out to LA and give him a personal apology. And Justin did that and Janet didn't. So they're hypothesizing that a big part of her troubles with MTV revolved around Les Moonves and also being blacklisted. And then the documentary spends quite a bit of time, unfortunately with only one woman, uh, who I think is some sort of journalist, a black woman, talking about what Janet means to her, talking about... She makes some really good points, one of which I think is that in the United States, we don't respect black people, mm -hmm. certainly not black women, mm -hmm. or their bodies, right? Historically, we don't respect black bodies as right. we think about lynching and abuse and slavery, shooting, police shootings. So we don't respect black bodies. So why would we respect this black woman? And then getting back to what you were alluding to, the symbolism of this man, specifically a white man, tearing the the tearing off her skirt or ultimately her bra to expose her breast. The reason that Janet 
got all the brunt of it and Justin was able to get away with an apology is because we just don't respect black bodies. But the I, thought, but the, even to the, that the, that particular line of that song, and that's the response to a man. I'm, well, I'm gonna right. have, I'm gonna take you by. That's saying visually, I'm taking you by force. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, so another thing that they bring up is there's some like family commission for decency. There was some entity that was started, of course, like the Catholic Legion of right, Decency right, right. and blah blah blah. And they have the president of that group on the doc, on the expose talking a lot talking about why it's necessary. They also have this Republican uh, congressman who started some bill, but they were very concerned about um, decency and... Uh, Christina Titty is... Uh... But they had worked... They had done a lot of work before 2004, mm -hmm. but 2004 is when it blew up because their website was the one that blew up and got all those complaints, which ultimately went to the FCC and then all that shit happened. But um, I wanted to say about that is it's so annoying watching these politicians and talking heads and even just regular regular people going on and on about this is not right and my children should be exposed to this and that and it's just like i don't understand first of all i don't want to be exposed to your children well i'm not saying that what i'm saying is that <laughs> it's so outrageous to me that pe like nipplegate happened because it was on live television and it's like if everyone's so afraid of anything being the least bit inappropriate. Why do we air things live? I know. I and just don't understand. There can be a three-minute delay, a five-minute well, delay. I, I know that they have to do it because you don't want the results of something to come out before other people get to know about it. But it's like you can delay something for three minutes. Well, yes. And, uh, you know, get, it's, just so, it's just so fascist to me that you... <laughs> I do think that as consumers, we should be allowed to make informed decisions. So if a film, I think we should have ratings, but they should be very clear. Like it shouldn't be, oh, this is rated R because it has gay sex, but this is still PG-13, even though it's filled with violence. I don't think we should have ratings like that. I think we should have very specific, like this film contains heavy smoking, mm -hmm. but, three, three sexual but, acts. And a lot of expletives. But you, okay, you, you and your family and all your little kids are into sports. Great, watch sports. But realize that this is a live event and there are unexpected things that might happen. So if you are so hellbent on your child seeing something that you can't control, which who knows what it might be, then don't watch live shit. I don't well, I don't agree with that because I think that... No, I don't, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm just very tired of having to, we all have to be dumbed down for kind of this base level of I'm not existence. saying that we need to uh, water things down or dumb it down. I'm saying that I think people have a right to have an expectation of what they're seeing. And I think it's a fair expectation that there's this major event that is a very family-oriented event. We should expect that there's a certain, um, like, con like, like that the content will fall within a certain, um, like, within certain guidelines. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think what's unreasonable is to then allow these live events to occur not anticipating that the unexpected could happen. I think that's outrageous. I also think that people should be allowed to present what they want to present, but that the consumer should be allowed to make a choice. So don't tell me something's rated R because it's arbitrary. Like, I don't find acts of sex offensive. Like, if I had children, I would let them watch, you know, the crying game before I would let them watch, like, you know, fucking Predator. Right. And both are rated R. But the crying game, you know, because we see acts of intimacy that aren't that, like, explicit, and then we see a penis on a person who presents as female, to me, I think 
my 11 year old could watch that because I would be very prepared to explain what they're seeing versus the predator. Like I don't, there's a very violent sexual act and well, pre like predators too, like, and then lots of violence. I wouldn't want to explain that to an 11 year old. So I think it's just a very interesting thing how they have clips of like some politicians, like on some commission talking to like CBS and the NFL. And like these people are just like, they're preaching at them. And it's like, we don't need that. If someone breaks a rule, they get fined. That's the end. I don't need you to scold me about decency. And it's like, well, we stupidly aired a live broadcast, not thinking that anything could happen. And there you go. But it's just look at the backlash at JLo and Shakira. Like, it, like it's, it's too sexy. Like, ugh. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I, like, again, I think there needs to be an expectation. They should say, like, if Shakira and Jennifer Lopez are performing, then I think we can expect that there's going to be suggestive dancing. So it's just like as an adult, if you don't want to see that, then don't watch the halftime show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, don't, like, just don't watch it. You can watch the game. When the halftime show comes on, turn it off. Like, so it, it's very interesting to me. But then getting back to this, they talk about, so the head of Virgin Records, who Janet was signed to at the time, is on the thing as well. And he taught, and then the president of Clear Channel, which owned all the radio stations back then, is also in the thing. And Randy Jackson, Janet's brother and manager currently, is on as well. And they all say they don't think Janet was blacklisted, that they wouldn't use that word. What they think happened is, so Clear Channel says they didn't blacklist her. They because the local stations are the ones responsible for programming. And what really honestly happened was in more conservative markets where people were very bothered by the Super Bowl incident, God. those stations didn't want to play Janet Jackson because they didn't want the feedback. Pun intended. Pun intended. So, you know, and so then he says, you know, in cities like Salt Lake City, they wouldn't play Janet Jackson because they're very conservative. But in more urban markets where they like her, then of course they played it. And the reality is... The album in question is called Demita Joe, which is um, her poorest performing album and didn't reach number one. It's not her poorest performing. Her two first albums are the poorest performing. But since her first number one, Control, Demita Joe is her lowest performing. And they attribute that to the Super Bowl, which makes sense. But in reality, the performance of that album by anyone else's standards would be a success. Mm -hmm. It went, I think, double platinum. And then it had some minor hits. So one of my favorite songs. One of your it. favorite songs is on it. There are some good songs. I think it's it has critical acclaim, but it did perform well for anyone else. But for Janet Jackson, it does seem like a failure, and it's certainly due to the Super Bowl. But um, and then lastly, I just wanted to talk about because people always say like, why don't I like Justin Timberlake? I think he's corny. You know, maybe when I was younger, like in college, I thought he was attractive, but. I, and I, he is talented. He can sing and dance. But sure. what bothers me about Justin Timberlake is he has really profited from his proximity to black people, which includes Janet Jackson. Mm -hmm. Then the incident happens. He doesn't take ownership of the fact that what he did, his role in that and what it represented is really problematic. Then as a culture, we all just sort of like align with him and think that he's okay. But then this black woman. Well, again, this is why black people or white people, even if you're uncomfortable, like you need to, you need to say something. 
Sure, <laughs> like, but, I, but, but I don't but, want white people the, saying, but, I don't want anyone saying shit if they're not well informed, they don't have the vernacular to do so. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry. No, but I think what you're referring to, like with the the root, the drag race Brooklyn Heights thing is like, well, but I don't want Brooklyn Heights talking about black shit if she's going to sound crazy and, and make me more annoyed by her. So I think her giving a generic answer like, wow, you're, you know, what a great thing that you can express this. Yeah, it does seem generic. But it's like I definitely don't want you trying to. Talk but the, about but the thing, the other thing you just said about the culture didn't step up and kind of say anything about Justin Timberlake's dismissiveness of the time is also part of the problem. Like, but that's different from slavery. Brooklyn Heights is not around. Was not around when slavery was happening in you know in, in the way that it manifested with Kamora Moore's performance. No, but she pulled a Helen Keller. But <laughs> like, well, no, I mean, no, it's not the same as someone like. Nowadays, we see something happen to, you know, like we all saw this thing happening to Janet Jackson in 2004 and, and everyone, no, sure. and, and everyone still was like, how could she do this? And it's right. like, but we also didn't have social media then. And I don't think that the people that felt differently, again, the, the problem with cultural gatekeeping and, and, and our news media is there wasn't anybody that was brave enough to take that stance. I talked way too long about this, so we ran out of time. But uh, oh. no, we still have some time. But um, uh, you know, Justin and that bullshit apology he gave over recently, it tied it into his Britney apology. Oh, yeah. Tied it to a Brit. That's some bullshit. So I just don't care for him. But anyway, same. We need to move on really quickly. So projects of interest. There are three of them. One of them is called Passages. Oh yes, uh, Ira Sachs is filming a new movie. Uh, his last his last one was Frankie with. Um, Isabel Pair, which I didn't really care for. That's why you haven't, I haven't made you watch it. Uh, but I interviewed him in 2012 for um, Keep the Lights On. Uh, really interesting uh, gay director. Uh, his new movie, he's doing an international angle still, uh, starring Franz Rogowski, who you saw in Undina, uh, and Ben Wishaw and Adele Exarchopoulos. Uh, so I'm excited for that. Another one's called Golda. Yes, uh, Israeli director Guy Nativ is directing... Uh, Helen Mirren uh, in a Golda Meir biopic, uh, who you know was the first uh, female prime minister of Israel. Notably, she was um, played by Ingrid Bergman in a TV film, which I think was Ingrid Bergman's last role, and I haven't seen that production. But the stills were uh, uh, shown uh, this week of Helen Mirren, who does look transformed. Uh, Camille Cotton, who you just saw in House of Gucci, is also in it. And then Boston Strangler. Uh, which is, as you know, about the Boston Strangler. Uh, Carrie Coon and uh, Kieran Knightley, I believe, are signed on to this Matt Ruskin production, which should be interesting because it's from the female journalist uh, covering the Boston Strangler. There is a decent Boston Strangler movie uh, directed by Richard Fleischer, who directed Mandingo, which we discussed last week, uh, with Tony Curtis. That's worth a look. I think it's a little dull, but uh, I think... Uh, if you're into serial killer films, this could be interesting. And then for the obituary section this week, we don't have anyone. So praise the Lord. Oh, no one's died. The Lord. Well, no one important. Not just kidding. <laughs> no one important to my bubble. No one important to my bubble. Uh, all right. So this week it was my turn to choose a surprise film. We have 12 minutes left. Okay, well. But um, the, I, the, I don't um, think we'll need 12 minutes. The film you picked was trash, so. So I picked a film called, oh, you know what? Uh. I didn't even look up. It's I, I, I picked a film called Highway to Hell. <laughs> it was made in 1991. And released in the U.S. in 92. Uh, it's from a Dutch filmmaker named Ant Dion. 
uh, who is probably best known for Drop Dead Fred, <laughs> which I've never seen. I've seen it more than once, Drop Dead Fred. Uh, uh, it stars Chad Lowe, Christy Swanson, Patrick Bergen, who we know from Sleeping with the Enemy. Yeah, the Berlioz listening abuser. So I chose this film because we were like, just like, we, we were in our bedroom and you were... Like, I was just watching TV, and you came in, and then I was looking at, like, just flipping through movies, and I saw this one, so I put on the trailer, and the trailer was fun. Yeah. The trailer made it seem like this was going to be a really funny, ridiculous movie. Mm-hmm. So, I chose it. Unfortunately, it's lacking. It's quite like, he was written and produced by Brian Helgeland, who would go on to write Ellie Confidential. He directed Payback with Mel Gibson, which you've seen, the hubba hubba hubba, um, and uh, Legend with Tom Hardy as the Cray brothers. Uh, so Helgeland's quite notable. Uh, and I'm guessing Drop Dead Fred was successful enough that this also got made. Christy Swanson is fresh off Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is a cult classic. Don't really care for her. The basic premise is Christy Swanson and Chad Lowe play a young couple who are about to elope. Mm-hmm. And they are going to elope in Vegas. So they have to drive from wherever they are. It seems like they probably live in like, I don't know. Maybe somewhere like New Mexico or something. So they're on their way to Vegas when they take a detour off the main interstate and they basically take a portal to hell. Yeah. And the main character in hell is um, Hell Cop, played by that one actor. Um, he has no dialogue. They fashion him very much like Hellraiser. Isn't, CJ Graham is the guy who plays... Isn't he the one in like The Hills Have Eyes and... Oh, no. Who's that guy with the interesting face who does, like... I'm forgetting his name. But okay, no. Condition. I thought that's who that was, but it's not. No, who played... Not Jupiter. I'm not remembering. Anyway, Hell Cop takes Christy Swanson's character because he likes virgins. And then we have Chad Lowe driving around in hell trying to find her. Patrick Bergen plays a character named Beazle, who initially helps mm-hmm. Chad Lowe's character, but ultimately we find out that Beazle is really Beelzebub. Which, if, yes. So he's the devil. Very thinly veiled there, sirs. So Chad, and then it relates to the story of... um, Orpheus and Eurydice. Right, where like the devil allows... So Chad is able to find Kristen, but then the devil gets them, and then they beg and plead, like, please let us go. The devil says yes, but under one condition, that you never look back. Well, he has to race. But uh, then that also gets tied into like, but we'll also like if we drag race uh, Hell Cop and we win, we can leave. Maybe and they that's, do. Maybe that's what's happening on our block with these drag racers. They're try- they're getting out of hell. So they like they're successful. The end. Um, uh, we only have nine minutes. Uh, th- this movie was not interesting. Uh, there. There are moments and the production value, while it does, you know, the effects aren't the best, clearly a lot of work was put into this I think film. some of the practical effects are quite good. Some. Yeah. But, but the point is, a lot of effort was put into this film, but it's a shame that it's not good. And I think the reason it's not good is because the leads... Are terrible. Are so fucking bland. Chad Lowe... How, how old was he when this was made? Well, this was 91. So this is the same year... Um, 91, and he was born in 68. So that means he was 23, 22 years old. He's, You know what he looks like? He looks like an old baby. Yeah. Because like, he's a twinky-looking white guy. He's very thin. He has like a, like, a, like a 12-year-old boy's body. Yeah. But then that face 
looks old to me. He's like you kept saying he's better skin than Christy Swanson. He has very smooth skin, but his hairline and he just he just looks like an old baby. And then Christy Swanson is has has no energy, nope. no oomph. Nope. What is well? She's kind of a problem too, right? Uh, we watched that terrible movie with her and Dean Cain recently. Well, now she's like super conservative. Yeah, she's annoying. Uh, and then I just saw I watched her in Higher Learning, and I thought she was kind of a weak link in that too. Um, there are fun moments. Um, this was the same year Rob Lowe did Bad Influence and the sex tape scandal hit. I have a few notes because um, we were talking like, what's the takeaway of this story? And I and it's so weird because I think the takeaway is like, th- there's a point made up more than, the, the point is brought up more than once that like, because she's a virgin, that's why Hell Cop is taking her. Mm-hmm. So had she not been a virgin or we can make her not a virgin, she'd be okay. So it's like, is the takeaway like versions are bad or like? Well, get rid of your V card or or yeah, throw away your V card but, before you travel. Um, why would Satan be so puritanical? Why would Satan want to look like a, a bland looking Australian man, or when he's in his purple devil face, looking like Peter Weller? The, some of the interesting moments. One is there is a scene where people are being like people who've been sent to hell are like getting ready to be like dismembered and like a meat grinder or something. So you have this long line of people and they're from all walks of life. And we hear them trying to give excuses mm-hmm. for the bad things they did. I actually thought that was a really interesting. There were interesting. And then all of the construction. And all of the workers there. Are dressed like Andy Warhol. Are dressed like Andy Warhol. That was really good. Um, Gilbert Gottfried is in the film. As, as is Ben Stiller and his parents. And sister. And sister. And then Ben Stiller is repurposed as two characters, mm-hmm. which was really obvious and weird. But hit, uh, Gilbert Godfrey plays Hitler, which is pretty, like, WTF. Uh, and Richard Farnsworth is in it as well. Uh, it, it feels like it should have felt more Mad Max gritty. Uh, it's strange how many similarities this has to something like Nothing But Trouble. From the same year? Yeah, minus the jokes. But, yeah. The best scene in the film, which is also in the trailer, is Christy Swanson's character is sort of like... Like, there's a scene where she's chained to a bed and she's begging Chad, like, have sex with me. Mm -hmm. And then when he kind of says he won't, she turns into this monster Mm -hmm. who has what I think they're trying to achieve, like a black lady voice. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. But it is the funniest scene in the movie (laughs) because she's like trying to get to have sex with him and she's nude with these sagging breasts and big belly and she's like I'm a lover not a fighter and then he shoots her like yeah. down like a portal well no she he, he shoots her he shoots her and she lands on the bed and she falls through mm-hmm. like a gateway to hell so if he had had sex with her he'd fallen in this this hell hole there's a scene where they're at uh, like the with Cer- Cerberus and the blind man and Sharon I, I I thought that was interesting. There are interesting things. The dog looks like shit. Yeah. There's another scene where it's like Back to the Future where they're supposed to be driving really fast in this car and the wind is blowing in their face. And it looks like they took like a leaf blower Mm -hmm. to Christy Swanson and Chad Lowe. That was ridiculous. Then there's a cop at the end of the film who pulls them over when they get back into like the normal realm. And that cop looked like Miles Teller. He did. He was um, so young. It was such poor casting. There, uh, it's funny how certain periods, because this does feel very '90s, like uh, depictions of Satan or the devil, uh, 
this depiction reminded me also very similar to Jamie Sheridan in the the TV miniseries The Stand, Mm. uh, which is only a couple years later. My final note is the end of the film, there's like a song, and it's like a really like... It feels like something that would have been at like a Lilith Fair. Yeah. It's a very, yeah, like folksy and it's like a lady singing. Maybe the next time you'll get what you want. Maybe next time she won't be that strong. <laughs> and it's, I, I can't recommend this movie. It felt tedious. I think maybe with friends and alcohol, you could get some chuckles out of it. I, I would instead recommend just watching the trailer. Yeah, that and has all it, the best moments. It is on Amazon Prime for free, so maybe go to the end and watch the... Uh, I, I think the last 30 minutes are more palatable sure. than the first hour. It does feel a little tedious. But um, yeah, the last 30 minutes, there, there's more happening, and it and it is... There, it, there are a lot of WTF moments. Is, when, I think there's a scene where Chad Lowe is being choked out, and Christy Swanson's response is, Stop that! I love him! <laughs> Yeah. It, okay. <laughs> they just have no charisma. <laughs> Uniqueness, nerve, or talent. No, they really don't. Well, we have three minutes left. Is there anything you want to say? This is another busy week for us. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm sure you have a quote for us. Oh, I just finished reading Ruth Rendell's The Crocodile Bird, which is not a notable um, title in her oeuvre, but I had a nice hardcover copy. And it was okay. Uh she wrote uh, a book called The Judgment in Stone, which has turned into La Ceremony, a favorite Isabelle Pair film of mine. Uh, you're reading a book too, aren't you? I'm reading a book. I'm reading two books. I should. I'm supposed two to be. Books. I'm supposed to finish Gay Bar. Yeah, you did, haven't done and that. And then I'm supposed to finish a, Elin Harris's first book, Invisible Life. Yeah, so you should finish it so I can read it. Um, But I uh, pulled up a Ruth Rendell quote from one of her books, An Unkindness of Ravens. The knives of jealousy are honed on details. Okay. I don't know what I think that means. Think about it. Well, we'll see. Anything else? No. Bye.